This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. You're listening to Seeing and Believing, a film and television podcast that searches for the sacred on screen. I'm Kevin McClendon. And I'm Sarah Welch Larson. Now, Sarah, I feel like, given the subject matter of this week's episode, I need to get something very clear in my own mind first. You wouldn't happen to have any dark secrets that you need to inform me about by any chance, would you? Anything that I might be potentially hiding, anything shady in my past? Hmm. Any skeletons in your closet, literal or figurative? Um, I think the only one is that, Kevin, I really love movies. <laughs> okay, I mean, that's not exactly what I would call a secret, but I'll, I'll take it, I guess. Excellent. <laughs> Listeners, we are going to be having a very mystery-focused episode of Seeing and Believing this week. First up, we're going to be talking about the new streaming series from Peacock, created and mostly directed by Ryan Johnson, the Natasha Leone starring Poker Face. And then we're going to be uncovering some dark secrets with a movie for the watch list. That's going to be my pick, Bad Times at the El Royale. I'm going to be playing my cards close to my chest about what I thought about this movie, Sarah. (laughs) Can't wait to hear your thoughts on episode 368 of Seeing and Believing. Hello, Miss Kale. I'm happy to finally meet you. I've got this gift. Always knowing the truth. I only know if something is a lie. The real trick of it is to figure out why. We're here on episode 368 of Seeing and Believing. Sarah, I'm glad that we had kind of that little bit of business at the beginning of the episode to get any dark secrets possibly out of the way. That's a load off my mind, at least. Good way to clear the air um, as both the TV show and the movie that we're going to be talking about today reveal the truth always comes out, whether you want it to or not. One way or another, that is always what happens. The movie we're talking about is, of course, Bad Times at the El Royale in the Watchlist segment. I'm excited about the first segment, though, because we don't do TV shows that often on the show, so it's nice to get to one on this week's episode. And part of the reason I'm excited about talking about this TV show in particular is it's actually created by a guy who made his bones in the film industry. That's, of course, Ryan Johnson, Mm -hmm. who is currently riding high after the success of his two Benoit Blanc mysteries, Knives Out and Glass Onion. So now he's kind of gone all in on the mystery genre, at least for now, with a new series for the Peacock streaming service called Poker Face. Natasha Leone takes the starring role as Charlie, a drifter with a unique talent, the preternatural ability to tell whenever somebody is being untruthful. Though she starts out by using her talent simply to win big at the occasional poker table, the first episode ends with her becoming an amateur sleuth on the run from some shady people and solving whatever malfeasance crosses her path on the open road. Each new episode takes Charlie to a new place, a new set of characters, and a new mystery to solve, all of which follow a template popularized by Columbo. We know from the beginning who done it, 
And the big question is, how is our hero going to find the holes in the villain's so-called perfect crime? Call it a how catch him. So Sarah, to get us started, maybe we can establish a baseline for, for that. What mm-hmm. is your previous experience, if any, with the how catch him subgenre? And how well does Poker Face work as an exponent of that subgenre? The how catch him is something that I've always been kind of interested in, but somehow have never actually been able to make the time for. So my familiarity with Columbo comes from Columbo's uh sudden appearance on streaming services a couple of years back when everybody was watching Columbo at the beginning of the pandemic, Mm -hmm. um, looking for something to see on TV that was, you know, interesting, but kind of more of a comfort viewing type of TV show. So I'm familiar with the And just one more thing line from Peter Falk. I'm familiar with people who recognize Peter Falk as Columbo, essentially, like he and the character are kind of one. But in terms of the how catch structure of storytelling, I more know about it than am familiar with stories that utilize that structure, if that makes sense. So I've seen my share of murder mysteries. I did used to watch a decent amount of detective TV when I was in high school, but it was more in the traditional whodunit sort of vein where you're trying to solve the mystery alongside the detectives or the cops who have developed, who are working on that case, um, as opposed to the Hal Catchem, which kind of dispenses with all of that suspense whatsoever and really rides more on how can the person who is trying to piece together the mystery build their case against the suspect who we always know? Um, and really, Poker Face kind of feels like a really solid introduction to the subgenre, at least to my lights, partly because it feels like such a refreshing throwback to episodic TV. And I know that other critics have called this out. Um, so I'm not saying anything necessarily new here. But um, it's also just still good to repeat something that's, you know, kind of true and probably always will be true. This is a really good TV show that does a really good job of operating within the restraints of single episode stories where there's just one recurring character and everybody else is completely new. So you kind of get introduced to a whole new world in each individual episode. And I think that's part of what keeps the How Catch'em structure fresh is you're interested in learning more about this world alongside these characters and then interested in seeing how Natasha Leone's character, Charlie, is able to deconstruct the worlds and the lies and the wrongdoings that they've built for themselves over the course of the rest of the show. So I'm curious to know, did this structure work for you as well as it did for me? And is this also something that you're a little bit more familiar with than I am? I mean, I I kind of grew up around this style of, of mystery show or, or the style of TV show. Um, my dad was a, you know, he really liked Columbus. He also is a big fan of the original uh, TV series of The Fugitive, Mm. which wasn't a mystery show per se, but was um, definitely an anthology style TV series where every episode, you know, there was one central character, but every episode was that character thrown in the mix with a bunch of brand new guest stars who had never been seen before and would never appear again. Um, And that's definitely something that Poker Face brings about as well In, in some ways. One of the big draws of the show is getting the chance to see Natasha Leone bounce off of whoever the guest star is for that episode, mm-hmm. which is a lot of fun. Um, and I do find the overall formula of the 
of this kind of show to be appealing. It's kind of cozy. I've never been the sort of person who watches mystery shows because I enjoy sort of trying to figure things out along with the detective. It's just, it's not the way my brain works when I'm engaging with a story. It's, it's just not something that interests me personally. So a version of a mystery story where there isn't really a mystery to figure out. It's more just having the enjoyment of watching the dogged detective sort of pick apart the bad guy's story. I find that personally very a very satisfying way to go about telling a mystery story. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and I think that uh, Poker Face, for the most part, fits kind of well into that kind of cozy mystery where you just you, you just kind of like sit down and you enjoy kind of a low well not a low stakes time, but uh, there, there is always murder involved. There, there's, there's always murder involved, but it's it's the sort of mystery show where it's not murder most foul. It's more more like murder most you know mustache twirly (laughs) you know it's 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 the sort of show that you kind of you sit down and you enjoy and you don't have to like you know keep your whiteboard of all the different plot connections and callbacks to previous uh episodes uh handy in case you forget what a tertiary character's name is yeah i like that um i don't know that this at least on the strength of these initial episodes we've watched we've both seen the first four episodes Mm um i i don't know that the show is completely found its feet yet i think after a first a really strong pilot episode um it's it kind of has um found a a baseline that's good enough but it's not something that i find super exciting Hmm. but it is also kind of nice to see a tv show just be you know solid and not and and again not require so much work from the audience as as much as as just enjoying it for what it is and i think there's a place for that too Hmm. yeah i wonder if the um i don't i don't know like what were some of the things that you found so strong about the pilot that you were you felt like you were kind of missing because the pilot really is kind of a a setup episode that just tells us how charlie ends up being on the road like it's really the inciting incident for her to be able to bounce from episode to episode from here on out so was it the strength of the introduction of the character was it the sense of setting or place setting like what was it that really worked for you i mean i think a lot of it has to do with the um i mean it even though the pilot episode is sort of place setting and to some extent there is a uh a, a mystery that uh that charlie has to solve mm-hmm. um it's uh has to do with a a sniveling uh casino boss who uh uh orders a hit on a friend of Charlie's and the uh, the casino boss is played by Adrian Brody. And I think like he's the Brody is a strong enough actor that he really makes that bad guy really fun to watch. Mm. Um, and I think the, the way in which Charlie kind of finds the way to prove what she suspects, because she already knows that something untruthful is going on mm-hmm. um i find i found the the basic mechanics of that to be stronger than some of the subsequent episodes hmm. where i i didn't think the the guest stars were maybe quite as strong and i didn't find the the path that charlie takes to nailing them with the evidence mm. of that they left behind to be quite as satisfying mm-hmm. and i guess that's maybe what it comes down to in the end is like for a show like this, it kind of needs to run on the nuts and bolts of each, uh, 
the you know the machinery of how does Charlie catch him? Mm-hmm. And um, these these initial episodes, I guess, were good enough, but I didn't find the later ones to be as fully satisfying in just the details of that machinery as, say, the pilot episode was. Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting because I am in agreement with you that some of the mysteries aren't as satisfying as some of the others. But for me, what the show is coasting on isn't necessarily the nuts and the bolts of the um, building the case against who done it. It's more about kind of not even coasting on the vibes, but floating on the vibes of the settings for each of these episodes. So every episode takes place, I think, in a different state, definitely in a different kind of geography and setting. Um, So you have, you know, a casino in Nevada. You've got kind of a roadside stop somewhere in the American Southwest. It's kind of unclear if it's supposed to be Arizona or New Mexico, and it doesn't really matter because it's a liminal space anyway. And then the show continues to bounce around, you know, the Midwest and Texas and a couple of other places. Um, And for me, I think the individual guest stars which you've brought up a little bit um and which we should definitely talk about because there is a murderer's row of guest stars (laughs) on this show pun completely intended um the lineup of the guest stars plus the settings that they're allowed to just sort of play in it really does feel as though ryan johnson and his co-creators and then the writer's room on this show are really just having fun here and The murder mystery, or at least like the mysterious parts of the murder, feel kind of like an afterthought. And again, part of that is because of the structure of the How Catch Em. And part of that is because it's just so much fun to watch these different people come in and kind of play in a space and get to be Columbo-style villains where we know what they did, we know how they did it, we know precisely why they did it. And it's just a lot of fun to watch Natasha Leone just sort of bounce off all of these different people and then move on on her merry way. So I don't know. I, th- I think it works for me for the most part. And I'm not too concerned about trying to get all of the pieces to fit together all that neatly. But that, I think that's because the show isn't really interested in doing that either. Yeah, I mean, it's it it's definitely a, a taste thing more than a craft thing i guess like there there it might just be that there's something about the show that just for whatever intangible reason just isn't gelling for me quite as well something like columbo and i wonder if part of that is just um even though leon's an kind of an affable presence i i kind of found myself in the in these early episodes needing something else to anchor it besides just kind of that affability. Hmm. I, I, um, I think she's a, a really likable presence. And I think the guest stars are really good too. We've got Lil Ray Howery. We've got John Darnielle mm-hmm. of the mountain goats. Um, we've, we've got Hong Chow, Oscar nominated Hong, Hong Chow. Oscar nominated Hong Chow. Like there, there's, there's a really strong cast and I think they all acquit themselves admirably, but I feel like right now the show is still kind of skating on the surface of Charlie as a person, hmm. I guess. So I, if you think about Columbo, kind of the his the whole calling card of that show is that Columbo's, you know, he's got the rumpled trench coat. He's got kind of like this, this really sort of scruffiness to him. And the way he presents himself leads the villains to underestimate him. They, they think, oh, there's no way this guy's going to catch me. I'm so much better than him because hmm. I'm higher class or I'm more polished or, or whatever. And the show kind of cleverly uses that as the as the way for him to 
get get one over on them is is they underestimate him in that way hmm. um i've heard rem, uh comparisons of columbo to say the father brown mysteries by gk chesterton hmm. which also kind of play on that where you know he's just he's just a priest and so people think that oh he's a pushover hmm. and i feel like with poker face charlie that dy- something in that dynamic is missing where she's She's fun to watch, but she also has just that unerring instinct to know with for a certainty when someone is lying. Mm-hmm. And the show doesn't really delve as much into what that means, I guess. Like it's 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 more almost like a superpower. The mm-hmm. the show doesn't obviously call it a superpower, but it functions a lot in the way of the superpower in that there's not really a whole lot attached to it. It just it is what it is. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't really comment on the interpersonal dynamics as much. And maybe I'm kind of waiting for that to assert itself more strongly. There's a lot of room for it to do so, but I'm I'm not don't know that I've seen it so far in these initial episodes as much. Maybe the ability to tell when someone is lying, it it feels a little bit gimmicky. I will grant you that. I think it works for me because the show doesn't allow it to be a true superpower and that Charlie always knows precisely what someone means when they're lying. She can only tell that they're lying. They're telling an untruth. They're not being completely straight with her. And sometimes other characters can use that to their advantage. Like there, there's the show does still have some fun with that. Say a character lies about something and Charlie can tell that they're lying, but she can't tell what about they're lying and so she has to go around and talk to all of the other people to figure out what the actual truth is so there's still a little bit of additional like clue gathering and some digging that she needs to do in order to be able to sort of triangulate the truth and i think for me that's part of why the the initial gimmick sort of works is that charlie has this ability but we do as the audience as well because we've seen the murder and we've seen the cover-up and we've seen how somebody plotted to end somebody else. And so right alongside Charlie, we can also always tell when somebody is lying. And I think that that kind of gives us a bit of an additional shortcut where we're not stuck feeling like we're smarter than she is as a character. We're just watching her unravel something that we already know. And it's it's fun to watch her do that without having to think that she's sort of bumbling around asking really dumb questions. Because when you're investigating something, sometimes you just have to ask the really dumb questions in order to uncover the truth. So that's something that I think works for me pretty well. I do think that the strongest aspect of the show is the writing of of some of the scenes where a character knows about her ability and then you get to see them kind of strategically answer questions in ways where they're not lying so Mm -hmm. her ability can't sniff anything out on them and yet it's it's not entirely forthcoming Mm -hmm. so in the third episode which is uh, centers on uh, this this barbecue uh, magnate who uh, yeah, has committed a murder. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a scene uh, between Charlie and another character where uh, Charlie unwittingly has revealed her her ability to this other character who has been inv- who is involved with the malfeasance. Mm-hmm. And the fun in their subsequent scenes is watching this other character really strategically present herself in a way that takes that kind of sidesteps Charlie's gift. Mm -hmm. And I think 
that is the kind of really savvy writing that I I love about this show, and I'm really hoping to see more of in, in subsequent episodes. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Um, I kind of want to talk about the individual settings, too, because you mentioned something earlier that um, I keep coming back to, which is that the show kind of feels as though it's skating along. It hasn't really put down roots necessarily. And I don't know if I want to defend this show choice so much as just put it out in the open that it's also kind of a road trip show in that Charlie is just bouncing from place to place over the course of the entire show. And one of the things that I love about that willingness to change the setting with every single episode is the show's ability to play with setting and play with tone and genre a little bit in each of these episodes too. So um, like I mentioned before, there's kind of an episode that's set near a truck stop somewhere in the American Southwest. And the camera work does a lot of... um, the cinematography does a lot of work just kind of playing with the light that appears on the sides of, you know, the the camera. Like there's a lot of really interesting lens flare and glow that's going on. I don't think the show was shot on film. In fact, I would be shocked if it was. But it kind of looks like they're going for that old school look where everything looks just a little bit grody. They didn't try to pretty it up necessarily. It doesn't look shiny and digital and so for me another one of the pleasures of watching this show alongside just watching charlie unravel everything is watching her do it in a new and interesting place where the show kind of molds itself a little bit towards the individual settings too i do really want to talk about the the visuals and the directing Mm -hmm. of this series because i think that's uh easily its strongest point i mean this is i i don't you know, who can say uh, how much of this is uh, Ryan Johnson's presence as as showrunner? Because he hasn't directed uh, all of these episodes. Yeah. Um, and yet there's just a visual dynamism to a lot of it that I I really, really liked. The third episode, again, there's like there's a split diopter shot. Like it's way more dynamic than it has to be for a show of this uh, of this type. And I really am happy to to find something that even when maybe the narrative mechanics aren't entirely uh uh spellbinding to me you know, uh the the visuals are really making up a lot of ground for that and uh so much of it also has to do with the w- the way it's establishing different settings different cultural milieus and kind of just kind of letting us be in a place with a really strong sense of place and uh, infer how that might affect the story that's going to unfold in front of us. And it's not just the setting in the place, although the setting in the place and the set design and the costume design especially are all really, really good. I think they're using some interesting tools. Like you mentioned the split diopter shot. There's also a really fun shot where one character hears a song that is life-changing. And as she hears that song that is life-changing, the lighting in the room around her changes. Like the lights flicker out around her and then there's a spotlight that's shining on her face. And you can tell right away this is only what she is experiencing and yet you feel it with her because Mm -hmm. they're being really playful with the lighting and then there's another detail in another episode where charlie has to try tasting different things in order to gather clues and they kind of do almost the ratatouille thing but instead of visualizing that sense of taste um it's a shift in the music where 
obviously it's not diegetic. There's just a little bit of a, a change in the theme for the show where every time she tastes something that tastes just a little bit different, like they'll they'll bring in like different flutes or violins or something like that. It just sounds a little bit different and you get a good sense for what she's trying to find as she tastes these different things and sort of develops a sense for, well, is this actually a good clue or am I just, you know, licking different objects in order to <laughs> uncover the mystery that I'm trying to solve? I mean, it's worth noting that uh, Johnson has brought some of his collaborators along, uh, you know, from the the world of film into the the show here. Uh, his cousin, uh, Nathan Johnson, does the music on this show. So that's... Uh, and. I am a big fan of Nathan Johnson's composing on all of Ryan's films. Mm -hmm. And I think this show also uh, finds a way for it not just be sort of wallpaper, so to speak, but to be an integral part of the meaning and the text of the show as well. I, I just think, again, like even if there are parts of this that I'm kind of hoping grow stronger as the show goes on, I'm going to keep watching just because it's it's engaging to watch. Like just the visuals are way above par for your average mystery show. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the visuals, the costuming, the set design, everything. It just feels creative and it feels like everybody's having fun being creative and they're having fun telling this story. And maybe that lends to a sense of some of those murders feeling a little bit on the lighter side. Like it, it's got a light touch, but it doesn't feel demeaning necessarily. It just feels as though this is a romp. And this is the kind of universe where um, you can have a romp while somebody has just been murdered somewhere in the background. Like it, it doesn't feel as though it necessarily negates out any like moral feeling on the character's part i think charlie is a has a very strong moral compass and i think a lot of that comes from her ability to suss out when somebody is lying that moral compass may not necessarily always be lawful just given her character background at being willing to you know cheat at gambling but she does seem to have a very strong sense of right and wrong and she's willing to go back and help somebody else out who's in a jam who may have been blamed for something that they didn't do even at great cost to herself. And I think that that kind of ties into that central character trait of hers. Really one of the only things that we know about her is that ability to tell when somebody is telling the truth and to want to bring that truth out no matter how much that could potentially hurt her. So that's, I think... One of the things that's keeping me watching is, you know, the setting and how much fun it is. But then the other thing that's keeping me watching is kind of that backbone. And I'm really curious to see if that backbone continues to grow. Yeah, I'm really interested to see how the show grows as well. Listeners, that is our review of Poker Face. It is streaming currently on the Peacock streaming service. So if you have that service and have had a chance to watch this show we're really interested in talking to other people about it. It's, yes. It's enjoyable. And if you like the the sort of Columbo-style cozy mystery, I guess it's not technically a cozy mystery. That's a, a, a term of art, an established term maybe. Mm -hmm. But it is a very, it, it's great, comforting TV. Yes. Uh, if, if you like mysteries especially. So, so I think it's safe to say that we would both recommend you check, people checking it out. Oh, yeah. I mean... Let's be fair. You did also mention that John Darnielle guest stars in an episode, and that alone was enough to get me to be interested in watching this show. <laughs> um, I am a major Mountain Goats fan, but the strength of the show, I think, is enough that where I would recommend it even if it weren't, you know, in... 
I would recommend it even if, you know, my favorite singer wasn't involved. <laughs> well, uh, like I said, listeners, if you've had a chance to see this show, let us know your thoughts. We're interested in talking about it. Don't go anywhere. We're going to talk about a film in the second half of our show, Bad Times at the El Royale, coming up. This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of Nine Lives and County, a bounty hunter's journey to faith, hope, and redemption. Written by Dwayne Dog the Bounty Hunter Chapman. Nine Lives and Counting not only offers a fresh perspective on well-known life events, but also ventures into behind-the-scenes territory and backstories never shared publicly. Nine Lives and Counting is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Visit thomasnelson.com audio to learn more. Welcome to The Conversation. This is the part of the show where we share what we've been hearing from all you listeners out there, keeping the conversation about movies going. And Sarah, I feel like we've been getting a, a lot more emails lately from, from listeners out there, and I'm here for it. It's great. I And I don't know if this is partly just my perspective, having recently gone cold turkey on Twitter, um, but it's really nice to kind of go, go away from the bite size sort of conversation to something much more long form and uh and and really developed um and we got one such email this week in our in our mailbox dave courtney wrote in uh wanting to share his thoughts on our review of m night Shyamalan's knock at the cabin Mm -hmm. which we were a little bit down on it's safe to say Mm -hmm. dave had another reaction to the film he was more positive on us than than we were he said In part, I thought the clarity of M. Night's adaptation made significant changes to the somewhat muddled source material, Hmm. where the book actually leaves many of the questions unanswered and leaves things in relative tension and without resolution, M. Night manages to weave those points into a singular and developed vision with real thematic cohesion and presence. That's why I I actually appreciated the telling rather than showing aspect, which you and I, Sarah, both talked about on last week's episode. Mm -hmm. Dave continues... Without that element, the book actually lacks any real message and point. And then he goes on to share uh, part of his letterboxed review, which is much more long form, so we can't go into detail on it on the air, but we will put a link to that review in our show notes for any listeners who want to check out Dave's review on Letterboxd. Thanks so much for sharing that, Dave. I uh, enjoyed reading your thoughts, even if... I don't know that I'm entirely convinced. I'm still a a thumbs down on Knock at the Cabin overall, I think. I'm afraid I'm a thumbs down as well. But one of the things that you mentioned, Kevin, about email being a a chance to dig in, like you and I obviously really like to dig into movies. That's why we have these conversations every single week. And I really love having those conversations sort of branch out into email, social media, other forms of communication, and just keeping that conversation going. So uh, thank you for writing in, Dave. We will be linking to that Letterboxd review as well. Um, And if you want to find us on Letterboxd, we have an account now. It's called See Believe Pod. Same account name as our Twitter account, which I'm still running. I'm still there, (laughs) at least until that ship sinks completely. Um, But in the meantime, if you want to reach out to us and talk to us about the movies that we've reviewed, if you want to give us maybe some suggestions about what you want us to review there is a patreon for that but there's um definitely many ways to be able to get in touch and we really do love it when listeners come and tell us what they thought about a movie even and especially if they don't agree with us 
Yeah, uh, and I'm all here for uh, Letterbox kind of becoming a new locus of seeing and believing activity. So I'm glad that we, uh, we, by which I mean you, Sarah, created <laughs> this the official seeing and believing Letterboxd account, and why I'm really glad that Dave shared his writings on Letterboxd with us. So check out that link in our show notes and check us out on Letterboxd. <laughs> First time at the El Royale? You have the option to stay in either California or Nevada. I always want to stay in the honeymoon suite, even though I'm not currently on my honeymoon. <laughs> what are you doing out here? I got a job singing in Reno tomorrow. Don't pay nothing, but uh, singing, singing. <laughs> this is not a place for a priest, Father. You shouldn't be here. And now it's time for the watchlist segment. This is the part of the show where one host picks a movie that the other host hasn't seen. We both watch it and then we talk about it on the air. So Sarah, this week was your turn to pick for the watchlist segment. You chose a relatively recent film from 2018, Drew Goddard's Bad Times at the El Royale. This film opens with a scene of a man hiding a bag full of valuables inside a room at the El Royale Hotel before meeting his untimely demise. A decade later, that bag of valuables is going to be a catalyst for an evening of violence, hidden identities, and one extremely menacing cult. These goings-on feature a cast that has such heavy hitters as Jeff Bridges, Dakota Johnson, Cynthia Erivo, John Hamm, and Chris Hemsworth, though just like the movie itself, I'll play coy for now about who is playing which role in the plot. <laughs> uh, so Sarah, you uh, said uh, before we hit record that you want to spread the good news of Bad Times at the El Royale as far as you could take it. So why did you... Uh, pick that why do you love this movie so much and what's the galaxy brain connection with poker face i guess we can start with the galaxy brain connection with poker face which is that this is a movie that at some point involves uh you know a casino that has had better times which happens in the pilot of poker face it also involves a cast of characters who are not who they initially say they are. And I think almost every single one of these characters has an identity that is hidden or at least not immediately obvious at first sight. There's a lot of thematic play having to do with right and wrong, good and bad, truth and lies within Bad Times at the El Royale. And it's also kind of a throwback. Um, this is sort of, I believe it's been billed as a neo-noir. I think we can quibble with the genre trappings a little bit. But this is a movie that is set in a hotel that has seen better days in a genre that has also seen better days. And which was made with an interest towards how that genre used to be made in the past. Like this film was actually shot on film in 2018, which is kind of an accomplishment in and of itself. And so it kind of has a similar sensibility, although a very different tone to Poker Face in that it's interested in examining things the way that we used to do in the past and then holding them up to the light and saying, was that actually really necessarily worth it? And one of the things that I love about Bad Times at the El Royale is that, like Poker Face, it does have a very strong moral center to it, and it is very interested in the consequences of hiding the truth and then also the consequences of uncovering the truth 
And whether or not hiding or uncovering that truth is ever actually going to be worth it. Is it a good idea to live in ignorance or is it a good idea to go digging for those darker secrets that you may or may not necessarily want to be uncovered? And then once those secrets do come to light, what do you do with that knowledge? I think there's a lot of really rich textures that Drew Goddard is playing with here. And so that's one of the many reasons why I really love this movie. So I'm curious to know, you saw this for the first time. Did it sing for you on a similar um, tenor or was it something that fell a little more flat? I mean, I don't know that it sang for me quite as sweetly as as it did for you, obviously. I mean, you obviously love this movie. Mm -hmm. I liked it quite a bit. I'm really surprised that, you know, when this came out, it kind of flopped. It didn't really find an audience. uh, And a lot of the critics reviews that I read, at least, were kind of middling to even negative on it. And I honestly don't know why. I thought it was really solid. I had a good time with it. Hmm. Um, I don't know that... It's interesting that you brought up like uh, noir and neo-noir in relation to this uh, film because I think there are elements to it, but the the connection that I made most strongly in kind of uh, the mode it's working in, it felt very tar- Tarantino-esque to me. Hmm. Um, you know, a lot of... It, it's set in the 1970s. Um, there's, you know, a lot of needle drops in it. There's, you know, a large cast of characters, violence, you know, there, there's, um, it plays f- with time, fractured chronology. Yeah. Um, there, there's all that stuff going on that, uh, Tarantino kind of really, um, popularized with films like Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction. I, I especially thought of Reservoir Dogs while I was watching Bad Times. Mm. And, uh, I, I think that the, the, more closely it gets to Tarantino, the the maybe less I enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that there's a lot of really strong stuff in here, and there's maybe a little bit too much stuff in the final analysis for it to, for me to like, you know, go wholehearted like this is a masterpiece. That said, I really enjoyed it a lot, and I think the maybe it's the performances that do it for me, mm-hmm. although. I don't know. I think the editing is really strong, too. Even though there is a profusion of stuff, it feels like it just, it moves. It's almost two and a half hours long. It doesn't feel that long to me. Mm-hmm. And I, I just think it's, um, I don't know, like I said, it's really surprising to me that this doesn't have more of an audience than it does, because I think it's a strong picture. I'm going to keep spreading that word one person at a time, (laughs) one podcast episode at a time, just going to keep talking about it for sure. It's funny that you mentioned the runtime, because that is one of the few places where this movie does lag for me a little bit, is maybe in like the very last stretch. It feels as though Goddard is kind of trying to stretch out a sense of tension that he didn't need to stretch out because it was already there and it was very powerful. And a lot of that has to do with the interplay between all of these characters. That's also around the same point where the movie starts to drop the playfulness with time and chronology and kind of gets into a much more linear storytelling mode. So maybe it's just that shift that doesn't always necessarily work for me. Um, I know that you were into Cabin in the Woods. And that's also another Drew Goddard uh, directed movie. And I'm curious to know if you saw um, any commonalities between Cabin in the Woods and what he's doing here, because it really seems like (laughs) he's very interested in, you know, one way mirrors and a lot of stuff about surveillance and spying and being able to see people when they don't know that they're being watched. And that's one of the things that really works for me in this movie is it feels like it's a little bit more 
fully thought out and more thematically realized, I think, than it does in Cabin in the Woods. But I'm curious to know on comparison, which of these two works for you better. I mean, those one-way mirrors, when I, when I saw them pop up again in this film, I was like, okay, I guess this is Drew Goddard's thing now. Yeah. Um, I mean, I don't know that I would say that it's more fully realized here than it is in Cabin. I think it's maybe used toward different ends. Hmm. In Cabin in the Woods, there's that scene, of course, where the uh, two of the characters are in adjoining rooms and there's a mirror in each room uh, that uh, one of them can see through and the other one obviously think it's it's just a regular mirror. And the way the scene plays out, it, it's kind of at first uh, setting up the the famous kind of trope of uh, you know, a slasher movie where you kind of, the, the audience gets to do a little bit of ogling of the, the beautiful young cast members mm-hmm. um, before subverting it by by having one of the cast members say, hey, wait, wait, stop, stop. I can see you. I don't want to spy on you. I'm, I'm a good person. Yeah. Um, and and um, I think that's part of the overall project of that film, it's, which is sort of undercut and kind of bring to light a lot of the... Uh, assumptions about the slasher genre that uh the audience may not have fully considered or maybe needs to interrogate a little bit more in bad times it's a lot more about playing with the idea of surfaces and Mm self-presentation um so uh in this film we get the the one-way mirrors except uh every hotel room has one of those mirrors and then there's an observation corridor that somebody can just spy on each room, you know, however they want and listen in on whatever conversations are happening. And there it it seems a lot more like, well, who are these people in their unguarded moments? We see all of the characters kind of in their alter egos in the hotel lobby. Then they each go into into their rooms and we get to see who they really are. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, it's a different use of kind of that idea of voyeurism and, and reflections and mirrors but I found it to be wholly satisfying just in a completely different way. Hmm. Yeah, I think for me it works a little bit better in bad times, specifically because we as the audience are kind of being invited to see these characters in both their guarded and unguarded moments. And we're pretty closely aligned with that mirror right from the get-go. Like the opening scene involves a character who ends up looking down the barrel of the camera as he's combing his hair and straightening his tie. And then you realize later, oh, he was looking at one of those mirrors at the moment. And so the character sort of brings us, the audience, in as much more active participants and viewers, I think, than we would be. I don't know, the the slasher movie uh, equivalents in, in Cabin in the Woods kind of feels as though we are passive participants. Like we are allowed to sit back and watch And then the movie kind of bumps us out of that complacency by having that character say, hey, wait a minute, I can see you through this mirror and that's really creepy. But here in Bad Times, we're kind of invited to be literally a part of the furniture and literally a part of the room that we're watching at the same time. Mm. And so we are inhabiting sort of that liminal space in the back of the hotel. And the the whole hotel is a liminal space naturally because people are going to pass in and out of it. But then there's also that additional actual liminal space on the outside of all of those hotel rooms as well where we are supposed to inhabit it but we're not there passively we are there actively watching and we are seeing probably stuff that we shouldn't necessarily be seeing like it's made pretty clear early on that this hotel is not a good place like the um 
the uh, bellboy essentially like sees a priest walk through the door and says, Father, this is not a good place for you and you need to get out of here. Um, And I think at that point, that's where my ears really start to perk up is that the hotel is there and it is a liminal space. But just because the hotel is an inanimate object doesn't mean that it doesn't have a sense of morality and also a sense of I don't know, use and abuse sort of baked into its walls and into the way that it's been built. And then the movie goes on to try to interrogate those inherent structures within that building in some really interesting ways. Well, I really thought it was interesting how that idea of boundaries and liminal spaces is literalized in the architecture itself by the fact that this is a hotel built on a state line. So there's the the California-Nevada state line runs literally through the lobby, and the characters cross over from one state to another uh, just by crossing the room. Mm -hmm. And and that that state line runs through the entirety of the structure even in that observation corridor there's a point where as one character walks down the observation corridor behind these one-way mirrors he actually steps over that state line which is still running through this this secret creepy you know sub basement Mm -hmm. which you wouldn't expect it it's and i i think that that's just a a nice way of for Goddard to, you know, it's not necessarily a subtle <laughs> directorial no. or, or screenwriting move, but I think it's very effective because it it never lets the audience forget about you know what you know what the real stakes of this story is. It's not just a Tarantino. It's not just a Tarantino style like cool violence for for cool violence's sake. It's more than that, and I think. That's what makes this movie for me more satisfying than Reservoir Dogs is I did find that it had a center to it that I sometimes find missing from Tarantino's lesser films. Mm -hmm. And I really liked that. It was nice to have some substance to go along with the stylistic flourishes. Yeah, yeah. I think my beef with Tarantino is that so often he's so focused on the presentation and the style of whatever it is that he's telling a story about that sometimes he forgets to tell that story beyond those aesthetics. Um, Whereas here, and I I know that's probably like a rude thing to say about Tarantino, but I stand by it. (laughs) Um, What works here for me is that The aesthetics are also extremely important to this movie. Like the design of the hotel is very purposeful. The Nevada side is purple. The California side is golden. There's a lot of symbolism going on in the colors there. Like you said, it's not very subtle at all. And I don't think that it needs to be because what Goddard is doing is he's playing with the ways that we present ourselves as people in the world. And he's saying, you can, you may present yourself in one specific way, but sooner or later, somebody is going to be able to see you for who you really are in your unguarded moments. And then what does your actual identity say about you as a person? Like, who are you in those unguarded moments? And is that a person whose life is worth living? And I think it's important that the movie is so focused on those surface level appearances because there's so much more that's also going on underneath those surface level appearances. And that's the case for both the set with the hotel and then the corridors behind the hotel. It's also the case for every single one of the characters that are inhabiting this hotel and taking part in this very, you know, elaborate and and interconnected play where all of these characters don't know each other 
at all when they first check in, but then they become entwined with each other, both in their involvement in the hotel and then also in the ways that they present themselves to the world and to each other. Um, and instead of that, allowing the characters to sort of bounce off each other, it kind of feels as though there are knots being tied around them that draw each other tighter and they can't ever really let go of each other once they've seen each other for who they really are. I really want to talk about one scene in particular where, uh, so at, uh, it's, uh, in the final third of the movie, um, a menacing cult leader has, has shown up and is holding, uh, the characters hostage, the, the other characters hostage. And, uh, Cynthia Revo is, you know, tied up to a chair and she's able to look this cult leader in the eye and say, I know who you are. Mm -hmm. You're not a, a charismatic spiritual visionary. You're just a guy who wants to do what he wants to do and get away with it and be not, and to be, uh, lauded for it. Essentially. She, she, that, that's the gist of what she says. And I think that scene is just so powerful, not only because of just the, the moral clarity of it, where it's not a, loud moment it's she's just sitting very quietly telling this this guy matter of factly that she she's not buying his, what he's selling mm -hmm. but also the reaction uh that that character has um i mean i it's not too much of a spoiler to say that's chris hemsworth mm -hmm. in in that role and i think the way he plays that moment is so wonderful because you can you can see him sort of go from this sort of charles manson ultra charismatic guru type to kind of shrink into himself and become exactly the, the shrunken person behind that facade mm -hmm. that uh, Cynthia Revo's character is identifying. And I think that's such a wonderful uh, moment for both performances, Erivo's and Hemsworth's and is an example of that moral center, I guess that we're, we're talking about. Cynthia Revo actually co-wrote that monologue at the end of the movie as well, which is part oh, really? of the reason why I love okay. it so much. Um, and yeah, Chris Hemsworth, Chris Hemsworth's performance in this movie, I think is really quite stunning because he has to do so much. He has to appear very charismatic. He has to appear very menacing and he overplays it on the level where you can imagine like a cult leader overplaying it because he's performing for a crowd, whether he's alone with his cult or whether he's, you know, trying to draw other additional new people in so much so that you can tell that he sort of bought what he's selling himself as well. He's, he's effectively high on his own supply. <laughs> and yet... That facade is something that he allows to slip occasionally because it is a performance. And there are moments where Chris Hemsworth character um, acts menacing or acts like he knows what's going on in the room. And the moment somebody loses his interest, you can watch him get bored and you can watch him slide off onto the next thing that's going to catch his attention. And usually that next thing is no good for anybody else in the room. But he plays that sense of boredom as though that is who that character actually is. Like he's not in it for, you know, the power necessarily first, but that is something that he gets out of what he's doing. And so it's a really nice perk of the job. He's in it purely for himself and for keeping himself entertained. And it's a very selfish way to approach the world. And I appreciate that the seeds of that are born in, boredom which is such a mundane thing to be like 
to have your motivation come from. And yet it feels so very true and so very real. And then the consequences of the boredom and then the selfishness that comes from that kind of spirals out and ruins everybody else's lives in the process. (laughs) I I mean, it's maybe somewhat fitting that Chris Hemsworth is one of those actors that I feel like I underestimate often at my own peril. Mm -hmm. Like I, I, it's not that I I think he's a weak actor or that I don't that I have some sort of problem with. I think he's a fine actor and I, I enjoyed him in just about everything I've seen him in. Um, But he's one of those actors where I can kind of think like, Oh, you know, he's, he's a talented comedic actor. You know, he's got those leading man, good looks. Um, That's all, that's all fine. And then he'll do a role like this where he just kind of, there's a lot of subtlety to the way that he uses his face and his posture and those good looks mm-hmm. um, in a very double-edged way that I find really engaging. And I think the cast as a whole really uh, kind of does a, a similar thing. This might be one of my favorite Jeff Bridges performances of, of kind of like his, his latter years. It's so good. It's, it's really good. Like it's, it's, it's warm and there's like, he, he's got a slyness to him that, you know, when, when his uh, facade is revealed, it's not surprising because he's been playing those notes throughout his entire performance. But when the full picture is revealed and you see how that slyness fits together with the other elements of his persona that we've been seeing so far that's really great to see and i enjoyed it so much it's kind of the magic trick of the movie in that goddard is showing us all of these characters who say that they are one thing but in reality are something completely different and yet the thing that they actually are kind of sings or like rhymes a little bit with who they say they are in interesting and revealing ways. Um, Every time somebody says something about who they claim to be, that underlying identity, I think, shines through in some interesting ways. So there is that slyness with with Jeff Bridges' character, um, where when he talks about, you know, he's a priest, and if the El Royale is a place where priests aren't supposed to be, then he is precisely where he needs to be. And that's him both telling the truth and that's him also kind of sidestepping the truth at the same time to a character who probably needs to hear that and also doesn't give that other character any information at all beyond like what's there on the surface. But it's there for us as the audience, especially as as we come to understand both of these characters a little bit more. Yeah, let's talk a little bit more about Jeff Bridges' uh, priest character because there is a, a scene late in the movie where he's forced to inhabit that role as a priest. Not not simply to sort of like, you know, play the, the sort of like the surface aspects of a priest everyone knows like you know calling everybody my son and you know uh throwing in a little bit of god talk here and there but actually has to step in and perform a spiritual uh part of the priest's duties Mm -hmm. um i'm interested to get your thoughts on that scene because i think it's it's a wonderful scene and yet when i come away from i'm thinking do I wait? Do I like what it's saying about yes. about spirituality and uh, and specifically Christianity in that moment? I'm not sure that I do. Hmm. I think it's a very interesting moment, though, and I, I, I want to talk about it a little bit more. It's a pretty thorny moment, and so for listeners who haven't seen the movie, we're not going to spoil the specifics of the scene. But so um, a character asks to be able to confess, and somebody else like urges Jeff Bridges' character to do that. And he delivers that sacrament. And 
that's basically all there is to it within that scene. But there's also a lot going on within the depths with these two characters and also a lot going on around them because, you know, the room is literally on fire. Um, and there's a lot going on around them because, you know, the room is literally on fire. And I think both of their souls are also on fire on a certain level as well. Like there is an element of discomfort to the scene in the asking for confession and penitence and then the giving of confession and or the the giving of you know that right and then the forgiveness of sins and I come away from that scene wondering just how cynical it is intended to be and for me the read is that these are two very broken people who have finally been able to see each other who who for who they really are and they recognize that they are both broken people and they're engaging in an act of witnessing that and then being willing to say, well, I know that you're broken and I know that I am broken. We both know that we are sinful and yet we still see the humanity in each other. I don't know that Jeff Bridges necessarily can like, you know, confer like that ultimate forgiveness of sins because that's this, that isn't the denomination that I'm in. Um, but there is, I think, something good and holy in these two characters being willing to say like we are both broken people and we need that forgiveness and so for this moment right now when we see each other we're not going to see each other for our sins we're going to see each other past those sins and past that into what could be and what comes with the forgiveness of those sins for me it's a very hopeful read i think even though i don't know if the movie necessarily wants to deliver that hopeful tone and so that's where I struggle with it every single time I watch it. And then after I think about it, I think I'm able to think my way through it to being a more hopeful tone. But I'm curious to know where you land on it, because this is something that I think I may have potentially talked myself into. And yet it's also one of the many reasons why I love this movie. <laughs> I mean, <clears throat> yeah, it's it's uh, it's possible to read it in, in a couple of ways. One way is, is to view it kind of in, in the way you just described, where grace can be conferred upon a person even through uh uh fallen means i mm -hmm. guess like god god's grace is you know god decides where you know where it falls not the the outer uh accoutrement of like a priestly collar or anything like that mm -hmm. um it's possible to read to read it that way it's also possible to read it as uh goddard implying that uh this character who needs absolution needs it basically as a comforting lie hmm. uh and that it's it's important that th he be comforted even though it's all hokum anyway hmm. and i would have to watch it again to know which of those readings is intended i think they're both possible i'm not sure how strongly goddard wants how strongly Goddard excludes the possibility of the grace reading and how strongly the, the, uh, the more cynical, uh, view of religion is, is, uh, is promoted. It, it's, I guess that's maybe the mark of why it's a good movie though, is you actually do want to rewatch it to answer these questions for yourself. You kind of have to wrestle with it. And I think where I come down and why I tend to come down on the more hopeful, you know, grace filled reading is that the character who is urging Jeff Bridges to hear confession and, and um, to perform the sacrament is one of the characters who has been kind of the moral spine of the movie up until that point. And that character 
straight up calls a con man whenever they see that con man. Like they're not having any of the lies. They know the lie when they when they hear it. They know the lie when they see it. They know enough to recognize it and to not want to engage with it. And so this character's willingness to engage in this situation and to say, you know, help this guy hear his confession, I think for me is enough of um, it, it feels as though Goddard is trying to lean a little bit more towards that hopeful, like maybe a little bit more humanist read, I think, on religion, if not necessarily like a fully spiritual take. Good news of a sort, maybe you could say. Yes. <laughs> well, consider this uh, the segment where you successfully spread the good news of bad times at the El Real to one it more person. Makes me so happy that that happened. <laughs> yeah, I, I had a good time with it. Thanks for sharing it with me. Absolutely. I'm looking forward to next week's episode where I get to share something with you. So listeners, next week's Valentine's Week episode is going to see us reviewing Steven Soderbergh's return to the Magic Mike series with a third movie, Magic Mike's Last Dance. Uh, I was a fan of the first one, Sarah. Mm -hmm. uh, I skipped the second one, so I have some catching up to do with Channing Tatum this weekend. Mm -hmm. um, we'll, we'll see how that goes. You could spend your time worse, I think. <laughs> In any case, uh, my pick for the watchlist segment to pair with Magic Mike's Last Dance is the Burt Lancaster starring adaptation of the famous John Cheever story, The Swimmer, from 1968. It's available to rent on demand from major streaming platforms like Amazon, Viral masculinity and the haunting evanescence of youthful vigor. What's not to love? <laughs> oh, man, I love that. That's such a galaxy-brained take. I'm so proud. Yeah, I figure I'd get it out of the way now so we can you know, move past it when we actually talk about it next week. But uh, listeners, that is what we're going to be talking about. So if you want to follow along with the Watchlist segment, as we hope you do every week, uh, you can find The Swimmer on Amazon Prime and other rent-on-demand platforms. But that'll do it for this week's episode. Seeing and Believing is brought to you by the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Our producer is the fearless Jonathan Clausen, who every week helps us to search for the sacred on screen. I'm your host, Kevin McLenathan. I'm your co-host, Sarah Welch-Larson. And we'll see you next week on Seeing and Believing. You have been listening to Seeing and Believing, an official production of the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Please rate and review the show in iTunes and check out our other shows at christandpopculture.com slash network. Theme music by Alexander Osborne and Lindsay Miz, used under Creative Commons License 3.0. This episode is brought to you in part by Ministry Pivot with Russell St. Bernard. This podcast features important conversations with industry leaders such as Nona Jones, Bishop Walter Scott Thomas, Reverend Dr. Nicole Martin, and so many more. Visit ministrypivot.com or on all streaming platforms.